Hello there, and welcome to the Palmal Doughboys podcast, a World War I history podcast keeping alive the memory of what is often called the Forgotten War. Coming to you from Sergeant Alvin C. York State Historic Park in Palmal, Tennessee, on the banks of the Wolf River. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Ranger Brady. On today's episode, we have a special guest to really kick the podcast off on a good foot. Uh, I got to speak with Mike Cunha, the creator and host of Battles of the First World War podcast, uh, where we talk about uh, pretty much just a general overview of the Mirs Argonne and the 82nd's involvement there. And I just really want to say again uh, a big thank you to Mike for coming on the show and we hope that we can do other special episodes again in the future together. Uh, I had a really great time, and he's super knowledgeable. So uh, without any further ado, we'll jump right in with Mike's introduction. We hope you enjoy. Sure. Um, all right. So thank you, David, for uh, for inviting me onto your podcast. I am uh, greatly honored. Um, it's really nice to be on the other side of, of things. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I hope that that I can confirm to you that yeah, sometimes all you have to do is ask, and there you go, and we've got this episode going. So um, don't don't be afraid to ask. Uh, so my name, of course, is is Mike Cunha, and I am um, the producer, writer, editor, everything behind uh, Battles of the First World War podcast. Um, so who who am I? I am you know, high school teacher by day, uh, you know, World War One nerd uh, every other moment of the day, and sometimes during school too, if I can get away with it. <laughs> um, you know, I, I live in Massachusetts. I'm a former um, member of the Army. Uh, very proud to say I was, I was a M1A1 tank crew member back yeah, in the day. Awesome. That, was, that was a lot of fun. Um, got my, my bachelor's and master's degree here locally focusing on on education um but that's all um you know that's that's for the day job but again like at when i have my downtime i i pretty much put it all into the the podcast and it's just um gosh man it's it's really like uh just a passion um mm-hmm. really enjoy diving into these battles in world war one it's, it's my favorite subject so having this podcast is just like a a natural way to focus and, and, and go deep and, and learn as much as I can uh, about Verdun, the Somme, and currently the, the American-led uh, Meurs-Argonne offensive. Um, so it's, it's, been, it's been fantastic just being able to, to buy books, um, dive into them, you know, and, and, and put these stories together to, to retell them through the podcast so that um, the names of all of these men and women that, that they live on. Um, so as, as long as we speak their names and tell their stories, uh, they, they will not be forgotten and they will continue to live on in our memory. So, yeah, uh, I, that's, that's awesome. Cause that's, I mean, I've listened to your podcast for quite a while now. Um, and I especially have a, a drive to work, um, at the park, but it's, it's always good to be able to throw that on and just the perspective that you give of taking it down to that unit level and that, you know, that singular person level sometimes really, to me, what really stands out is that connection that you can like, kind of make and feel just through their story because you're kind of getting put in their shoes. And, you know, sometimes you might think, well, oh, man, what, what would I have done if that, you know, person would have jumped up at me and would I have acted the same way or just, just making those stories real because I feel like whenever we think of World War One, we think of the black and white jittery kind of, out of upsped footage of, you know, overseas with people marching around and like, it seems so distant and not, not real. But then whenever you start hearing these stories that you tell and all these things like that, it really, it brings it to life and makes it to where it's like, wow, this, yeah. I mean, these, these were people, they were out here doing these things. And it, it's amazing that, you know, as many of them came back home as, as they did. And it's just, you just do a great job of, of really, bringing those to life. And like you said, helping those, the, the memory of those people to, to live on. So that's, it's awesome. Yeah. Cool. Thank Thank you. I uh, really appreciate it. Uh, other things that I do is, is um, 
just got back a couple of weeks ago from uh, leading a battlefield tour in France with uh, my buddy Rob Laplander, uh, who is um, very well known as the Lost Battalion guy. Um, Rob has written a book on the Lost Battalion. It's called Finding the Lost Battalion. Um, so he and I work together and, you know, our we were two years late on our inaugural tour. Um, but that was, you know, that, that was due to the pandemic, unfortunately. But um, yeah, we did get it this happens. year and uh, um, we got over there. We, we took out uh, a great group of guys um, for a week out in, out in the, the Meuse-Argonne. Um, so it was, it was an awesome time. It was just fantastic walking the ground um, uh, of um, Alvin York, um, John Lewis Barkley, Sam Sam Woodfill and, and others, um, and, and, you know, a, a lot of the, the main, the main battle sites of, of the whole offensive. So it was, it was fantastic. Um, so that is, um, that's one, one of the other hats that I wear. Uh, so lost battalion tours is, is it. Yeah. That's, I was, was, uh, keeping up with some of the, your pictures that you were posting while you were doing that, or, you know, after you talked about it and I was, oh, I was just super jealous. That's, that's really <laughs> awesome that, that you're doing that. But, um, but yeah, so I guess we'll just kind of get into it. Um, yeah, what sure. We're going to be talking about is this the the offensive here, the the Mirzagon, mm-hmm. and just sort of a general overview, and uh, maybe you can bring some insights to us that you've in your your studies and hobby, you're super focused in detail, but also just the generalized kind of thing, just a just an idea. So you know, let's just kind of like set the set the location a little bit, uh, like where we're talking about generally, and then. As you've said, which I thought is a great way to put it, you know, just act like Google Maps and zoom in and zoom out or um, be able to see what's going on. So we'll we'll kind of start wide and then we'll we'll zoom in. Sure. So first, the just some quick facts on on the Mozargon battle. So as, as far as the battle, it, it was. I'm not sure if it's the longest one we've we've ever engaged in. It was it was 47 days long, running from the 26th of September through the 11th of November, uh, 1918. Of course, uh, what while it may not be our longest battle, um, it is certainly our largest to date. So, upwards of one million two hundred thousand American soldiers were engaged in that battle. Um, and it's, it's our costliest battle as well, uh, of that 1,200,000 engaged, um, some 26,000 were killed and 95,000 were wounded. Um, and in that, within that space of about 47 days. So it was a, it was, it was a huge effort on our part and, and on the part of the American expeditionary force. And, and we were a young army, you know, just finding its way. And we had to grow up very very quickly uh and and we'll you know we can we can get into it more but to to begin if um if you're listening and if as i say on the podcast if you're not driving um you go ahead if you if you can get on google maps you can just point yourself just enter in um verdun france um v-e-r-d-u-n and um once you're there just look to the north and the Northwest, and that is the main area of the, the American-led Meuse-Argonne offensive. Verdun, of course, is the site of, of the, pretty much like the, the pivotal battle of World War One. That was a massive 10-month battle fought north of Verdun itself between the French and the Germans. It was a just a, a, a horrific slaughterhouse. Um, mm-hmm. Front lines shifted about six miles overall in ten months at a cost of about seven hundred thousand casualties um, between between the two belligerents. Um, so uh, we we're going to take over that sector in in the in the fall of, of nineteen eighteen right right before we begin the the battle. Um, so that's where the the Merzargan took place. Um, what are the events that that led up to it? So, without um, 
getting into like 47 episodes, which is what I'm doing with the motorcycle <laughs> on my podcast. Like I've completely lost control. <laughs> well, this, this is where they can, they can jump over and listen to your, your 47 episodes plus yeah. and then get a good feel. And then they can hop back in here and, and really yeah. know what's going on. So, yeah, that's a great idea. I appreciate that. Um, okay. So 1918 opens. Um, okay. Russia's out of the war. Um, so the Eastern front is now basically closing down. The Germans begin to shift, you know, hundreds of thousands of soldiers over to the Western Front. Okay, Russia's out, uh, but America's in. We we joined the war in April of 1917. So Germany is looking at a pretty bad situation here. So they decide that we've got to strike on the Western Front and and wipe out the Allies, or at least force them to terms. Uh, before the Americans uh, help help the Allies gain an upper hand, so in March of 1918 they start launching these massive attacks on the Western Front. And while tactically um, successful, strategically they just never get to that point where they split the Allied forces or they manage to, you know, really route an entire um, an entire Allied army or, or Allied army group or anything like that. It goes on through the spring of 1918. Um, and in the summer of 1918, the Germans are, uh, they're, they're decisively defeated um, pretty much at, at the, the Second Battle of the Marne. Now, the, the First Battle of the Marne in 1914 was a big deal. Second Battle of the Marne was a big deal as well because this is where the Germans lose all momentum and the momentum shifts over to the allies on the western front and from there in that summer of 1918 the allies are not going to let go of it they have the momentum now um, under the command of the allied supreme commander of marshal ferdinand foch he's like the the eisenhower of world war one um, foch calls for multiple attacks on the Germans all along the Western Front. He's been begging for this for years, um, but now he's in charge. And so now he's like, you know, great, we can finally do things my way. And his idea is if you hit the Germans at multiple points all at the same time, they cannot shift reserves from one section of the Western Front to the other. They're gonna get stretched out, they're gonna get stressed out, and they're gonna crack. And that's how we're going to get them. Um, so like I said, he's in charge. And um, that is the plan that, that he starts to put in place. So the details of that plan are like four big attacks over, over the course of three days um, in late September. So the 26th of September, you've got the American Expeditionary Force, the First Army. Um, they, they're going to attack in the Merzargon region. Uh, right next to them, just to the west, the French Fourth Army is going to support the American First Army uh, by attacking in the Champagne region. The next day, the 27th of September, the, the British and the French are going to attack jointly between the rivers uh, Oise and Scarpe. So this is like the old um, Arras battlefield. Um, and the old Somme battlefield. So we're talking like the Artois and Picardy uh, regions of France. Um, and then the, the last major allied attack is gonna come on the 28th of September. And it's gonna be the British, the French, and the Belgians attacking east of Ypres um, in, on the Belgian front in Flanders. And you know they're, they're just gonna start basically pounding on the Germans from there. So, all of these attacks, they're all going to come basically one right after the other, and the Germans aren't going to be able to deal with them. Um, so let's hone in. Let's like we can move over to the, the Meurs Argonne. So like I said, this is north and, and northwest of, of Verdun. And the Meurs Argonne is – the Meurs region is basically uh, – it's, it's the Argonne Forest – and then looking east, going east to the river, and then and then beyond the river uh, it, itself. Um, that's the the Meuse region of of France. So the 
the American First Army deployed itself, you know, from the western edge of the Argonne Forest. So they're going to they're going to cover the whole front line that ran through the forest itself and then on the Meuse front all the way to the to the the Meuse River north of Verdun. On the other side of Verdun on the eastern side, they also have the French 17th Corps, which is eventually going to attack, but on the first day of the offensive, General uh, John Pershing, the, the commander of the AEF, he, he doesn't, he doesn't deploy them yet. So, um, so how, do, how do we get there? So first we, we were kind of busy. Um, so we had taken on another mission in early September and that was to destroy the San Miguel salient, which is about, I believe it's about 25 miles, 25, 30 miles to the mm-hmm. southeast of Verdun, the town of San Miel, which is a, a beautiful town, by the way, if you ever get a chance to get out there. Um, the Germans had long had a salient um, that the French called the hernia. It was this bulge pushing into the, the French lines, um, cutting off rail communications between Verdun and, and the city of Nancy. So, um, they had tried to, to take it out, but they just couldn't. So now in September of 1918, the Americans chomping at the bit to, to get out there and, and show what they could do. Um, we launched this, this attack. And in, within about 48 hours, um, the Germans were actually already beginning to withdraw from the salient so that they could save some of their own men. But, um, and then we attacked them right at the same time. So the whole thing collapsed within about 48 hours. Um, and it was a great success, pretty light cost for the, for the Americans, relatively speaking, I think something about 7,000 casualties. So, um, so we eliminate that salient and then immediately we take all the majority of the soldiers that were down there and we start marching them up to the, to take over the, the Merzargon line. Um, so that we could be in place by the 25th of September so that we could launch that, that attack. Um, so, um, that's, that's kind of the, the setup. Um, and David, I know you had some questions here about like terrain and, and the weather and everything. Yeah. I mean, we don't have to get like too, too into it. And I mean, we don't even really have to talk about the weather, but, um, yeah, just kind of, um, I, I think a lot of people, myself included whenever I was younger and really first getting into kind of being a history nerd, like you're saying mm-hmm. about studying about this. And when you first get into it, you know, we always think of just the trench warfare that we see kind of in like that they, that was portrayed in the newsreels and all this other stuff of these big, super deep entrenchments and all of these really, you know, big pillboxes and all of these intricate things. What was that? How that was, as well out here or was it more open country that they were since they were moving and advancing they were just like hand trenches and foxholes that they would dig um and, and over this terrain was it more hilly or was it more like uh you know forested heavy forests or um kind of more rolling country or or a mix yeah so it was it was a real mix of, of everything you've just you've just talked about so, <laughs> so on on the the mers front about 53 kilometers north was this massive uh, rail hub uh, of railroad lines around the town of Sedan and and the town of Mezier, right right next door. And the the rail lines that that led out from here fed the entire German effort on the Western Front. So when the Americans took over the Meuse Front, the the objective was to break through the German lines and get up to the Sedan. Messier rail hub and either take it or you know m- make it unusable for the Germans and that would that would destroy the German war effort so now the Germans knew this they knew this for years so what did they do the terrain in in the Meuse be- between the Argonne and and the the Meuse river it's it's rolling hills about 200 to 300 meters in height um open rolling fields dotted with patches of woods. Um, I mean, like, like massive fields. Like I'm, I'm from, you know, like I said, I'm from Massachusetts. So like a massive field for me is like 
I don't know, like maybe two, three football fields. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty big. <laughs> the fields here are just they're, they're staggering, like how 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 long and like how how wide they are and how you know how just how far they they can go on um but then you've got patches of woods in there and you've got some dominating heights in the area you've got the the butte de volcois um you've got montfaucon hill which was uh both of those were important objectives for the first day then you've got these ridge lines that generally run east west uh, you've got the the romagna and the canal heights and then you've got the, the Barakor Heights uh, way further back. So the Germans, knowing that they had to protect Sedan at all costs, they spent the years be- between you know, 1914 and 1918 fortifying this entire region just for this very eventuality. So about from the, from the, from the September front line to about 10 miles um, back, the Germans built three solid defense lines. And by defense line, I don't just mean like one singular trench. Like you're talking like multiple trench systems within one position. And then once you break through that, you've got more multiple trench lines to take in the next German position. So um, then of course the third German position was known as the, you know, this was the, the Hindenburg line. Um, Mm-hmm. That, that ran the entire Western Front. So um, the Germans had the place wired, like every hill, every trench, every patch of woods, like everything was sighted and pre-positioned and, and everything was marked with artillery so that as the Germans pulled back, they, you know, they knew exactly what to do to, to hit the hill that they had just been holding with artillery. They did, I mean, they really... They really put the work in. So, um, and the, the difference here in the Merzargon is that when the Germans fought elsewhere on the Western Front, they could trade, they could trade space for time. In the Merz, they couldn't. So they fought like feverishly for every single inch of ground. And every time the Americans took a patch of ground, they, they immediately counterattacked to take it because they, there was no ground to give here. Um, so that's that's the terrain, and and for the weather, I mean, really quick, it was exceptionally rainy. Again, the the Mers Argonne battle is forty seven days. Uh, I believe it rained on forty three of them, so it was <laughs> miserable, yeah. <laughs> just miserable, and muddy. I'm sure, and slick, yeah. and going up and down those hills, and of course, trying to make it through all those one the the embattlements and the all the wire and stuff, and you know, it's hard enough to walk up a hill in you know slick boots on a on a good day but you know imagine with your 60 pound pack and your your weapon and everybody pushing behind you under fire and making it through all these wires and it that's that's a whole different story yeah yeah exactly exactly but yeah that's 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 a good um thing and i i wasn't aware of the that they that was i mean i knew they fought very hard for all of that but I had, I was aware that they, like you were saying, they could trade the time to where they would do like some people described it as the rubber band movements where the Germans would retreat so far and then let the Americans or the other, other forces come in and then they would come back at them and snap back at them right. because they would have time to, you know, gather up and then hit with a, a counteroffensive and try to take the, take the others off guard. And I, I wasn't aware that they, that's the reason they fought so hard in the, in the mirrors was that they couldn't do that. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so, so the reason that they're pushing through all through here, you know, you had mentioned the, the railroad hub and all that other thing. What, was there a specific kind of not necessarily end game, but the, their main goal objective for the kind of the main push of the offensive. I know we have all the little, um, smaller objectives to make along the way but what was the kind of was the main objective or the goal just to push through the germans and break them once and for all or what was that part of just we need to push through here to capture this main objective the big objective that will then help lead to kind of breaking everything down yeah exactly that so it was like you know we um the Americans were to break through those German lines, get up to the Sedan 
Messier rail lines and then cut those, like take those over, put them under artillery fire. Um, because from there, that would shut down the main artery that fed um, the rest of, of the German lines on the Western Front. So they, they wouldn't be able to to supply men or, or ammunition or anything else um, along the Western Front if, if we cut those lines. There was a second major rail line that, that ran along like the Belgian Dutch border, but it, it was, it was too far away. It was too, too cumbersome to use. So this was, this was like the main link. So if we could get up there and cut it, like it would bring the war to, to a close, like Germany wouldn't be able to resist. Uh, okay, at least yeah. they, they, they would have to Lift the arteries and yeah, they, at the very minimum, they would have to evacuate Belgium and Northern France if, if they wanted to continue fighting. Okay. Yeah. And, and kind of going along with that, you know, of talking about supply lines getting cut and things like that, going along with supplies and, you know, how the Germans were getting pushed back. Do you have kind of a a general state of both sides of the army, like how they were feeling? Like did, were the Germans kind of, did they have a sense that this was going to, like this was it or this was just, all right, let's fall back to this Hindenburg line and we've got it and we can hold them off. Or was it, could they see the writing on the wall? And then also were the, with the Americans being kind of the new spunky, just in the game kind of people, um, because you had mentioned that they had, you know, we haven't been over there that long. Were, what were, were they kind of ready and raring to go as well to get this chance to, to get in and fight or? Yeah. So the, the German, the, the German leadership, they knew like by the summer of 1918 that, that they, they were losing, like none of their big, um, offensives in the spring had, had been strategically successful. So they, they hadn't split the allies. They hadn't gotten anyone to break off and sue for peace. Um, and with the Americans just pumping about 250,000 men a month into France, um, they knew by the summer of 1914 that, that the game was pretty much up, that like they were going to lose the war. And what the Germans then, the German military leadership then decided to do was, okay, so we're going to fight and we're going to make it as painful for the allies as possible. Mm. Um, and, you know, make it as bloody and as horrific as right. possible so that we can maybe drive to some sort of settle settlement here. Um, they were still looking to, you know, to, to, to come out as successful as they could. Um, and that's them. The, the German soldier, the German army itself in the field, like they're they're hurting um, already in the spring of 1918. Some of the some of the attacks had had stopped because when German troops came upon um, abandoned British food supplies, they, they started like, um, they would just start gorging themselves on, on food. And, and while, while corned beef may not be like the best thing in the world, um, it is calorie rich. And for these guys who were, who were living on, on pretty meager diets up to this point to, to put all of these calories into their bodies, that's at, um, so quickly, like a lot of them wound up getting sick. And of course they, they looted British, um, and other allied, um, alcohol stores. So, you know, they're, they're getting, <laughs> they're getting drunk and, you know, in, ineffective, you know, for, uh -huh. for days. Um, so the German army's suffering. Um, so they're, they're hurting on, on the other side, American morale was, um, was fairly high. I mean, we, um, units were fighting throughout the summer and, and, and those units that fought, you know, like at Bella Wood and, and Soissons and the second Marne, like they, we, we took casualties and, and they were heavy. And those units were, you know, those, they became veteran units and they, they paid a heavy price to, to become, uh, veteran units, but they were learning. Um, now most of the American units that that fought the beginning of the of the Merzargon battle were were fairly green. They they were raw units, so you know um, morale was was high. They're, they're fairly eager to get into the fight and everything, um, but they they just weren't aware of like just what kind of fight this was. Like it was 
we, we had never fought any any kind of war like this before with these level of casualties, at, at least like not since the Civil War, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So speaking of them being inexperienced to this war, what, what type of, uh, just in this sort of, this area along this front, you know, we've been talking about this fighting and this, there were trenches and emplacements and things like that, but what, what was just kind of a general sense of, what an attack across, you know, a certain section of line would be like, what would that look like just in kind of broad terms for, uh, like American forces, you know, was it kind of just go, 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 or, you know, were they, but just what, what did all that entail kind of just the, the, the fighting aspect of it, you know, just say down to like a, a unit level. Sure. So we, you know, we, we started off on on the 26th of September with a massive barrage, um, you know, in in World War One style. But you know, it, it didn't last for days or weeks like before. It, it was it was several hours, and it was concentrated. And um, and in the in that opening barrage by by the American First Army, um, they fired more shells than the than the entire excuse me, they fired more shells than the Union Army fired throughout the entire Civil War. The U.S. Army fired that in like six hours in 1918. Wow. yeah, they, they were, they came to play. Yeah, like. yeah, and they were, yeah, so they pounded the lines and then, you know, it was, it was up and out of the trenches, over the top. And, um, you know, they, they broke through the first German line, started breaking through the, the second line. And, and it's, and it became a, open warfare, not open warfare, like limited open warfare, um, some mm -hmm. maneuver, you know, like you, you had to, you know, you were taking a trench line, you were taking a machine gun nest, you know, um, but, but there was some maneuver, especially when you could break through the German lines, like that became harder and harder, um, as we approached the, the German third line. But, um, but it was, it was, returning to like some limited maneuver like troops on the ground like there was that just like you said like really well that that go 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 attitude um after the first few days of the mers are gone when when our troops outran the the american guns um a lot of american officers continued to attack like even without artillery preparation and i mean that led to massive casualties like we a lot of our, a lot of our command and our leadership had had the idea that, you know, trenches are a European thing, machine guns are a European thing, and as well as grenades. Like the real instrument of war is is the rifleman with his rifle, and they believed in marksmanship and and maneuver, and you know, the Americans are correct in that sense. Yeah, you you need to. You need to maneuver and outflank and then close with and destroy your enemy. We, we still do that today or, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, we still do that today. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I did it 20 years ago we did, or, yeah. I, or that's what I trained for. Um, but, um, you know, the, the allies, you know, the British and the French, like they, they believed in a more combined arms approach. Like you have artillery, like cannon conquers, infantry occupies, and then okay. cannons, soften the approach you know they, they tear up the lines they they kill a lot of the defending troops then you move in with the tanks you know and, and then you move in with with the infantry and you've got air support you know the planes are flying overhead and and if they're not strafing the ground now or or dropping limited bombs um they are at the very least the airplanes are signaling for the artillery of where to start hitting the the new targets you know so we hadn't yet absorbed all of those lessons, but during the, the Mers Argonne, the American army, like we, we were going to learn very, very quickly. Um, and I, I don't want to say, um, I think, I think in logic, it's called, uh, the, the false mean, um, like, you know, like, sorry to go off topic here, but if you say no, like, like, uh, well, I think the moon, you know, like the moon is made of cheese like no actually i think it's made of rocks like well maybe the moon is made of cheese and rocks like i don't <laughs> i don't mean to like create that sort of uh distinction but i i do i really do feel that like the allies had a good point and like 
yeah, you want your artillery to like level everything in front of you and then send in your tanks and your infantry. But I also believe that the Americans were correct in that, you know, holding ground and, and really seizing it. Like, yeah, you, you need a rifleman in there, you know, closing with and, and destroying enemy forces. So, um, so these are the lessons that we learned. Um, that go, go, go attitude started to change really quick with, with some pretty appalling casualties that we were taking. Um, and leaders on the ground, the captains, the lieutenants, the sergeants, and the corporals, like they started to develop whole new tactics to deal with German machine guns, like outflanking, like fixing them in place, you know, like putting down fire while another unit would move around them and, and destroy them with grenades and, um, you know, like quick impromptu tactics that they had to, you know, devise like, like on the fly and right. um, be, be flexible and be able to adapt to the situation at hand because not every situation is the same kind of like not, not to go in to deep to it, but um, like the, the York patrol and that that's kind of what is almost exactly what you're talking about where yeah. their main force was pinned down and they send 17 men to hey flank around this left side and kind of, go around and see if you can either catch the the side and draw some fire off of them or silence these guns. So yeah, it's, it's very maneuver oriented and heavy, especially in these places where, you know, you can't just, we're in this trench there and that one go get it. Like that is the case, but there's a lot of complications in between there here and there, you know, not just the embattlements or the the other things like that, like the terrain, like we talked about, it's, it's not just a go across this field and hope you make it to the other side. It's okay. How can we make it across this, this little Valley, this dip, use this terrain to, to maneuver, like you're saying. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and one thing too is, is, uh, it's something I've put here on my notes that I've read many times is that, um, you know, the, the Americans had a lot to learn and the Germans were very harsh teachers. Like they mm-hmm. would, you know, they would catch every mistake. So, um, so it was, it was tough. I mean, our, our infantry divisions were about, you know, they, they, they averaged about 28,000 men, which was huge yeah, for, you know, number. yeah, it was, it was about, leave us at this point, you're talking about over twice the size of, of French and, and German divisions. And um, right, the square um, division, right? Is that? That's, yeah. Yep, yeah. exactly. So like with the, the 82nd division, you had two infantry brigades that each had two infantry regiments inside of it, inside of each. So, um, you know, the, the 82nd, when, when they hit France, they had about 25,000 guys in their ranks, you know, so it, the numbers could vary a little bit, but um, that's, that's a lot of men. And yeah. in, in the Merzargan, you like, um, they were seeing American divisions getting, getting chewed up and being rendered combat ineffective, like within two or three days, you know? So it was, yeah, that's crazy. it was heavy right, right there at the, uh, in, in those first weeks. So, um, yeah, yeah I'm sure it was, it was very, very eye opening, like you were saying for these, these fresh new troops who were ready and raring to get in the fight. And then after I'm sure they got into, a you know, the first couple of engagements, they were kind of like, Oh, this, this isn't what I was, what I was thinking it was going to be. We, we need to be smarter about this. And, uh, like you're saying, learn from the harsh teachers of, you know, the German machine guns and all of this, you know, that's, you got to learn quick. If, if you don't want to get chewed up and spit out, like you've been saying all of the, you know, has, has happened with, with the allies. Yeah. Yeah. You were talking about the, um, overrunning our artillery and things like that. Were there any instances of kind of uh, well-known instances of this happening where, you know, maybe some troops were advancing as they were expected, but everyone else weren't able to keep up around them and maybe some overran and actually made their objectives, but they looked left and right and there wasn't, you know, their comrades anywhere around them. Uh, Were there (laughs) any instances of that happening around here? my god yeah like like all the time <laughs> yeah <laughs> but okay um to, but just to to clarify a little better so the the american the the policy from from general pershing and and 
the AEF First Army was, you know, you advance um, irregardless of losses, irregardless of, of flanks. Um, so you just, you take your guys and you keep pushing forward. Don't look left. Don't look right. Because if the guys on your left and the guys on your right are doing what they're supposed to do, they're going to be online with you, but you don't worry about them. You keep pushing forward. And um, as my buddy Rob has said, you know, one of one of the tenets of, of command was was like, don't hesitate to sacrifice your unit to attain the objective. So mm. whether it's a 250 man infantry company or a 3000 man infantry regiment, like you take that objective no matter what it costs. And um, so perhaps the most famous uh, example of that, of course, is, is the so-called uh, Lost Battalion, um, the, the first and second battalions of, of uh, the 308th Infantry of the 77th Division in, in the Aragon Forest. Um, and I, I say so-called because they weren't actually lost. They knew right. where they were the entire time. Um, mm-hmm. So we're and uh, and the Germans most definitely knew where they were too. <laughs> um, so with these guys, you know, under the command of of Major Charles Whittlesey, they did exactly what they were ordered. They they advanced regardless of of losses, regardless of flanks, and unfortunately, they punched through the German lines um, and kept on going to their objective. And then they got to their objective, and they found that like the guys on the left and the guys on the right had not been able to keep up, you know, due to, due to heavy German resistance. So um, rather than in this particular case, rather than pull back, which was also um, categorically forbidden um, without orders to do so, Major Whittlesey um, and the men under his command, he, he elected to stay where he was in the Charlevoix ravine. And he, um, he, he dug in, dug a perimeter, and there he stayed and expecting the guys on his left and right to show up at any moment. And of course, they spent five um, horrific days surrounded on, on that hillside. Yeah, so. and they, um, they, I think uh, I had read uh, approximately they went in with, you know, about 600 men. And then by the time that they were reached or rescued, they only had about was it like 160 or so remaining yeah. from repulsing the, all the attacks on them? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a hundred, 194 guys walked out and it was, it was over 600 that went into that pocket. So it was, mm. um, a pretty horrific, horrific scene over, over in those five days. Um, no food, little, little to no water, um, dwindling ammunition, you know, and they, they suffered, um, friendly fire. It was pretty, pretty horrific. Um, but they, they held the line and, and they, you know, Whittlesey had not received orders to pull back or to do anything else. So he said, I'm going to sit here and, and carry out my mission. And, um, and he did, you know, and it, at, at great cost. Um, yeah. Man. You, you had a, a, a great question in the email, David, about like the impact of the lost battalion. Um, and I'll just try and answer that here quickly, like strategically. Um, and, and I might open you up to a lot of emails or something. I'm, I'm going to say that like strategically, they didn't have much of an impact. I mean, like the lost battalion did not affect World War One as a whole. But um, mm-hmm. what they did was was um, they were part of the operations to, to clear out the Argonne Forest in their sector. And when they were surrounded... I mean, they tied up several hundred German troops that were sorely needed elsewhere. Um, so that kept them in place. And they, you know, those Germans couldn't be used on other parts of the front. Um, and it also, you know, as as the the worry about this battalion became known and, and word of it traveled up up the lines of American command, the forced attention and, and some creative thinking um, to to get rid of this problem of the Argonne Forest, so and that's where the um, the eighty second division actually actually starts to come in. So um, you've got the Lost Battalion; they're surrounded. The, the rest of the seventy seventh is is bogged down deep in the Argonne Forest. 
fighting it out with the Germans, you know, like making little to no progress to their right, also fighting in the Argonne, but, but out in the, out in the open in, in, in the valley of, of the river air that runs to the east of the Argonne forest. You had the 28th Pennsylvania division fighting it out. Um, but both of those divisions were, they were getting, they were beat up, you know, they, they were, they were, their ranks were really thin. So uh, Lieutenant General Hunter Liggett, the commander of First Corps, who, who was in charge of the Argonne sector, um, what he did was he brought up a, um, a brigade of the 82nd Division and inserted them between the 28th and the 1st Division, which the 1st Division was on the right of the 28th. He put in these fresh 82nd Division doughboys um, and then aimed them west, like punching right at the, uh, the Argonne forest itself. And, um, and it was dangerous. Um, it was, it was a risky, there were risks in that operation, but Liggett pushed forward and he launched, um, the 28th and the 82nd. Um, and they did it. They, they, they shook up the German defenses enough on October 7th that, um, that the Germans were like, okay, we, we got to get out of here. We, we have to mm-hmm. abandon the Argonne forest. And that's, that did help lead to the, to the relief of, of the lost battalion. Mm. Okay. So. Yeah. And that's, um, I, I don't think I stated it earlier, but uh, the, the 82nd is um, division was the one that Sergeant York was, oh, sorry, Corporal York at the time uh, was a part of uh, should have mentioned, should have mentioned that off the bat, but I completely forgot. But that was um, what kind of led up to his his actions on October eighth, was exactly what you were talking about um, coming through the air air valley. So that's kind of a a good way to set up what what led him to to be where he was and why he was. But so uh, aside from that, which was mm-hmm. a, a great segue, what was kind of the? I mean, overall, we do kind of know what the outcome of this this whole part was, but in, in short, what main objectives were met and then what was kind of the, the, the resolution of, of this. So for the, for the, the, um, the lost battalion, you know, they, they get relieved. And of course the, the objective was for, was to clear out the Argonne forest, which, which finally starts to happen once Liggett pushes this, uh, this brigade from the 82nd division in, and of course, like you have the, um, the, this is the attack that leads the next day to, to the famed, uh, the famous York patrol. Um, but what, what happens after that is, is the battle goes on and, and, um, the 82nd division, um, they serve in the line pretty much throughout the entire month of October of 1918. Um, helping to clear the Argonne, helping to break the Argonne defenses and then pushing up north beyond it. Um, so clearing the Argonne and then, and then um, working on, on that air valley as well. Um, shortly after the Lost Battalion and York Patrol events, like there was a, um, a, a battle for the, the village of, of Cornet, which is um, just north of, of Chatel Chery. Where, where the York patrol took place. Um, mm-hmm. So this battle was the Germans had already given the order to, to withdraw from the area. Uh, unfortunately, this one German commander didn't get the orders in time. So he counterattacked uh, the Americans inside Cornet and the, the Doughboys inside, they, you know, they set up the houses as fortresses as, as quickly as they could and um, tried to support each other, and, and they fought it out with the Germans, you know, you know, they punch for punch um, as long as they could. But at one point, the, the American officer in charge, he realized he had more wounded men than fighting men left. So he, he made the difficult decision to, to surrender. And while he surrendered, himself and I think it was about 165 other Americans um, some some American units just managed to pull out um, then the next day the you know once the Germans secured the village they got the orders like hey man like we're, we're supposed to be getting out of here and um, 
So unfortunately, the next day, the Americans attacked Cornet again, and the village was actually already empty. The Germans had, had already pulled out. Um, <laughs> and what the 82nd saw over the next like three weeks to the end of October was just the grinding fight of the Meurs Argonne of like fighting for Cornet, Saint-Marans, Saint-Juvent villages, just, you know, infantry assaults, taking out machine gun nests, you know, clearing villages, re-clearing areas, you know, attack and counterattack, artillery, and gas, and of course the miserable weather and um, poor supply situation, you know, poor food, um, dysentery, and, and of course the, the flu pandemic ravaging the ranks. So it's, um, it's pretty rough. And, and the, when the 82nd is pulled out of the line, when they're relieved at the end of October, they had, they had lost about um, some 6,500 guys. So that's, that's a huge amount of their um, fighting yeah. power. So that, that just gives an indication of, of everything that they went through. Yeah, so it sounds like they really, for lack of a better way to put it, they they got the full experience of what kind of had been going on almost for the past four years with all all of the other fighting and kind of like a a compacted month or so. Which you know that's that's like you were saying some hard fighting, and they I'm sure they figured out real quick that you know it's not not the not the most fun that they were expecting. Uh, right, a lot of them were thinking. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So it was, it was, you know, they took really tough experience. And, um, and kind of in starting to close up here, do, do you think that the, the Muzagon offensive along with all the rest of them, do you think it, it had more of an impact than some of the other, uh, offenses along the lines, like the, the four different kind of areas that you were talking about that had more of a, I guess you could say kind of a dis decisive blow or do you think that they just all of that pressure all across everywhere at once was just kind of what finally you know brought it to to what happened you know with germany finally saying like all right we can't do this yeah well um so thank you for the opportunity for me to like um (laughs) and this is just as a joke but just to be uh uh, what would I say, uh, uh, an American chauvinist here? Um, you know, we um, we did not win the war by ourselves, but man, I do believe we took on the toughest sector. Um, uh, but so that that was the 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 poor joke there. the the <laughs> The true thing is that yeah, it really was. It 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 was everybody working together. And I know that sounds cheesy, but but it is just really true because like us hammering at, at that, um, at that crucial point, you know, like the Germans are like, Oh my God, the Americans are attacking here. We know what they want. They want the Sedan Messier rail hubs. Um, and then, you know, the French next to us attacking, um, in, in Champagne and pushing up to the river N. Um, so they're, you know, they're already reeling from that. And then the French and British attack in, in the, in the Somme, and, and Artois areas, like pushing them back there. And then the, the, the Belgians and Brits and, and French come up out of, out of Belgian Flanders. And like, all of a sudden the, the Germans have like, you know, the, the dike is springing leaks everywhere and, you know, you, you don't have, you can't stop it anymore. And so they're, they're pulling back the, the, the German supply situation, like while, they seemingly had like limitless ammunition, you know, food and everything else was, was a a big problem. Of course their units were depleted. I mean, they're a lot of their divisions were running at like three, 5,000 guys at, at best, you know, normally it should have been like two, three times that. Um, so they, they were hurting and, and by November, like, you know, they really knew that they, that they were losing and they were getting hammered. Um, particularly once we launched our final blow on November 1st, where we broke through the German lines and, and they were like, um, you know, Oh my God, we, we don't have any more trench lines to, to, to hold them back. So, um, that's when we just start racing for, for a sedan. Um, there was, 
there was nothing left, but it, but it was that combined effort of everybody working together and online pushing at the same time. So I, I believe, um, Foch, um, deserves, uh, a lot of credit for, for that idea. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know you were just joking around, but I, I hope this hasn't come across as a, you know, American chauvinistic, uh, just trying to cover, you know, the, the, yeah, the one no. little sector down here of, you know, leading up to the events on October 8th. Yeah. And, you know, no, same, same here, same here. The, the whole point is just to highlight the American experience, but of course, you know, like, um, very similar experiences with, with the French, British, Belgians, and I mean, even the German themselves. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've, I've, in thinking of this podcast in general, I've kind of been wanting to, I've found some of the, uh, like the, the German accounts of Mm -hmm. just in that sector and things like that, especially of the October 8th um, actions and stuff like that. And I've, I've been wanting to try and do from the German perspective and see, you know, cause that's, as we were saying, that is all we ever hear about is, you know, Oh, the Americans came in and they won the war. It's like, no, like we just, we were fresh and were able to come in and help. We, we didn't win yeah. the war, yeah. but you know, but also just hear, hear all those different sides, kind of like you, you cover in your podcast, but I kind of like to, to do that maybe one day and maybe, maybe in the future, if you're, if you're ever up for it again, you can um, join us again and we can talk about, you know, maybe from, from the other perspective of what, what was being seen with the Americans, you know, advancing towards the Germans and what their perspective was. Cause I think it's, it is important to tell all the perspectives and not just, you know, kind of focus in on one. So that's, maybe yeah. that's another, another episode for another day. Sure. Sure. And there's, a, I mean, one, one great line that always sticks out to me. It, it I read it first in, um, uh, Dr. Ed Langle's book, um, to conquer hell. Um, that's, that's about the, the Merzargan offensive and, and it's the, and it's my backbone that I'm using for the, the podcast episodes, but there's a great line found in a German letter that, uh, was, um, regarding the Americans, like, like the Americans are here. Um, we can kill them, but we can't stop them. So mm. that, I, I think that gives great insight to like, what the Germans were thinking very late in the war. Yeah, that's, I hadn't heard that. That's, that is a very, uh, not really an, an eye opening thing, but just a way to say like, Oh wow. Yeah. That's, that is kind of what they were feeling. They were up against and stuff like that. That's, that's crazy. But uh, this, this has been a great op- opportunity for me. I, I really appreciate you coming on here and taking the time to talk with me and, you know, a little break from your, from your teaching slash also podcast life. But, uh, is there, is there anything here we've kind of talked about that, that you'd like to, you know, kind of plug or anything like your podcast, you want to tell people where, where you can be found and what, uh, your works that you have out there? Yeah, sure. Um, so for, first off, D- David, thank you so much for, for extending the offer. I, I'm really grateful, um, um, to, to have been a guest on your show. It's, it's been awesome to, to talk about it um, and just talk about the American experience. Um, I started the podcast. I did Verdun. I did the Psalm um, and the, the Merzargan. I, I joke that it's kind of gotten out of control, but it, um, but I've kind of let it get out of control because I've, I've let the Merzargan kind of become um, an, an homage to the American experience in world war one. And mm-hmm. um, there is an end to it. We, we will cover other battles on other fronts, but, uh, but I've really wanted to, to get as much of the American experience out there. Um, so, so that people in the U S can listen and, and know what, what our doughboys went through. Um, as far as like where to find me, of course, there's battles of the first world war podcast, um, which you can get wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I'm on uh, Facebook, Battles of the First World War podcast it has a Facebook page, and then Instagram. Um, I think it's it's World War One Battle Battle Podcast, um, and I just post. I've been posting pictures of the recent France trip up there, and then of course um, on Twitter um, at WW One Podcast uh, there. So you can you can follow me on on all of those areas. Again, I've I've 
super appreciate you coming on here. And I've big, been a big fan of the podcast. So this is kind of like, I've been super nervous this whole time just talking to somebody that, you know, I've listened to for a long time. So it's been, it's been a real pleasure for me getting to talk to somebody so knowledgeable about these experiences and, and getting able to kind of kick off the <laughs> podcast with, with having you on here. Sure. Thanks. Super cool. Thank you so much. Please consider subscribing to the podcast here and leaving us a rating and review and sharing us with your friends, which, you know, only costs a minute or two of your time. doesn't cost you anything. And one last thing, I'd like to give a shout out to Vario Watches. Uh, they have a ton of awesome watches. They are Swiss movement watches. Beautiful watches. They're really great. Run really well and um, really well made. Uh, but I would like to specifically mention their 1918 trench watch. It is actually modeled after many similar trench watches that became prevalent in World War I and uh, were worn in the trenches by the men that came about from changing with uh, pocket watches to the wristwatch, which that's something we'll talk about in and of itself. But I would just like to thank Vario Watches. If you could, go check them out. I'll leave a link in the description for them to check out their website. They've got a great watch, especially if you're into reenacting and you want a good quality watch to go with your kit for if you ever do any World War One reenacting. I would highly suggest the 1918 trench watch that they have. Use code YORK8 at checkout for a special discount on your purchase. That's Y-O-R-K, the number 8, at your checkout for a special discount. Thanks again, and we hope you join us on the next episode of the Pal Mal Doughboys podcast. Oh,